It's an enormous privilege to, to join you here in the Bay Area. It's been a few years since I was here, and I've always come with a great appreciation for the um, Christians I've met here and the joint services of worship and opportunities to speak here and there. It's nice to be back in uh, this congregation, in this church building, um, but also to meet people from, I gather, something like 40 congregations. Um, I hope this will turn out to be a day of... Uh, refreshment in the gospel, of pleasure as we contemplate the glories of Christ, of instruction as we think through his word more closely here and there. I'm going to begin by reading Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And that is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. The title of one of Luther's most famous and influential books is The Bondage of the Will. Now, it's possible to talk about human will in its running relationship with the sovereignty of God. How do you work those things out? And that's a topic that is often explored in Scripture itself, and we could happily pursue it. But it's not quite the focus of Luther's book. He speaks of the bondage of the will owing to sin. And here we find human beings described as dead, because of their transgressions. It will be useful to divide the text, I think, into three parts. We focus first on human beings lost in transgressions and sins, verses 1 to 3. The you, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, is probably focusing in particular on the Gentiles, not always in Paul, but very often in Ephesians, there is a running contrast between you and we, you Gentiles, and we Jews. So that, for example, 
A little farther down in verse 11 we read, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called circumcised by those who call themselves the uncircumcision, verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship. Paul runs back and forth between the you and the we pretty significantly, and we'll see that that is important for our passage too. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Well, it's a metaphor, of course, in one sense. But in another sense, it's a telling metaphor of remarkable insight. We used to have a teacher of homiletics, of preaching at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, who every few years would take one of his homiletics classes to the local graveyard. He would assign certain texts to certain students who had to preach that day in mini-sermons. He didn't tell them in advance where they were going. He, he piled them all into cars, and they arrived at the graveyard, and he got out and pointed to one of the designated student preachers and said, All right, preach. Well, to whom? Well, to the dead people, of course. It was a graphic way of making a point. Now, the dead people to whom we preach are not yet buried. In most instances. But they are utterly dead to God. That is, there is no response that he evokes. There is no life. They are dead to God. Dead to God in their transgressions, that is, the breaking of what God has ordained, doing what God has prohibited, failing to do what God has commanded, transgressions and sins, utterly missing the mark. They're dead. So how preachers should ever be so stupid as to think that somehow by the gift of their oratory, by the insight of their exegesis, by the brilliance of their vocabulary, that they will get people saved is beyond all comprehension. We preach to dead people. So that although Scripture commands us to give a reason for the hope that is within us and to, to, to reason before men and women, we, we witness Paul defending the faith and, and speaking to Festus and, and, and we're, we're told that God himself says, come and let us reason together, says the Lord. All, all that is true. But at the end of the day, we have to face the fact that if somebody does believe, it's not our rhetoric that has done it but God's decision to use the foolishness of the thing preached to save some. Dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Ah, so a transition is necessary. It's not just a faith system. A set of propositional truths. It's a way of life. We'll come back to that. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Here, Paul uses the word world in much the same way that John uses the word world in 1 John chapter 2. What is in the world? 
the lust of the flesh, that is the desires of a fallen, broken nature within. The lust of the eyes, that is the way we find external things so attractive that simply distract us from God and constitute new, new idols. And the pride of life, that is the arrogance that suffuses our stance toward everything and everyone as we try to promote ourselves. The pride of life can be in such things as the size and depth of a pastor's library. The kind of house we live in, the kind of car we drive, the kind of church we serve. The pride of life is so desperately tricky. Sin does not so much consist in mere things. It is heavily tied to our devotion to things. And you used to live that way. They followed the ways of the world, we're told. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, Satan himself, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Indeed, all of us, ah, not just you, Jews and Gentiles alike, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, that is, like the rest of the world, we, Jews and Gentiles alike, we who are now Christians, were by nature deserving of wrath. That's really what children of wrath means children of wrath, belonging to the wrath family, belonging to the family that is visited by God's wrath. We deserve wrath. And that, not simply because of what we've done, but by nature. It's another metaphorical way at getting the, at the same truth. Dead to God, by nature deserving of God's wrath. There's no vision of hope here anywhere. This does not mean that there is no such thing as common grace. Sometimes people protest that this sort of picture of humankind is just too bleak, too dark. I mean, aren't there wonderful organizations like uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders? Aren't there people who give their lives to helping other people? And they're not Christians, particularly. They might be Buddhists or they might be Christians. They might be Muslims. They might be atheists. They, might be... They, they do nice things. Paul wouldn't deny any of that. But he still insists that by nature we deserve wrath. And to begin to see how that is a fair perception, we need to remind ourselves of some of the biblical in structures of sin. What's the first commandment in importance? Well, to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. So what's the first sin? Not to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. 
One of the reasons why it's the first sin is because it's the sin you always commit when you commit any other sin. If you never broke the first commandment, you'd never commit any other sin. But it's also the first sin because, oh, when you indulge in porn or jealousy, malice, anger, lasciviousness, envy, abuse. In every case, the party who is most offended is God. That's precisely what makes sin so sinful. That's why David, after his adultery and murder, Nevertheless, when he is brought to repentance, can say, as in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. He's not denying that he offended Bathsheba, he seduced her, that he offended against her husband. He had him killed. He offended against the military high command. He corrupted them. He offended against his family. He betrayed them. He offended, offended against the whole nation because, because at the end of the day, he was the chief magistrate. He's supposed to be supporting justice. But he has the cheek to say, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Because he understands that the standards of God are perfection. Where he failed was he didn't love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. What makes sin so sinful is offense against God. And even when we're busy helping people in Pongo Pongo or on the deserts of North Africa and we're exercising our medical skills, there remains some little corner back there somewhere on the backside of our minds goes to bed at night and pats ourselves on the back for having done it and doing so without reference to God who gives us the skill and the time and the patience and the energy and the education and the background and the culture and the health and everything else. And then the second command is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, once in a while we manage that, but it's only once in a while, at least for me. I have to confess, mostly I love me. Oh, I love you too in some nice generic sort of way. <laughs> but to love you as I love myself? We are all by nature children of wrath, deserving of God's wrath. For the standards of God in this connection are inflexible. And these sins, these transgressions, this nature, this flesh, this worldly attraction is so powerful amongst us that we are enchained or change the image. We are dead or change the image. We gratify the cravings of our sinful nature or change the image. We're deserving of wrath. But secondly, Paul focuses on God. God, who is rich in mercy, verses 4 to 7. This is one of the many but God 
passages in Scripture that ought to drive us to reflect. But God, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Now, this ought to be utterly jarring. Because in the first three verses, we're told that we are children of wrath, deserving of Who's wrath? Well, biblically speaking, that's God's wrath. So we deserve God's wrath, but God loves us and is rich in mercy. So which is it? People try to play off the wrath of God and the love of God in a variety of ways. Some say, well, you see, the emphasis in the Old Testament is on justice. It's on wrath. And the emphasis in the New Testament is on love. It's on mercy. In the Old Testament, you find judgment and war and genocide and starvation and pestilence and plague. And in the New Testament, you have Jesus goes to the cross and he tells us to turn the other cheek. So at very least, we're told, there is a difference in emphasis. The, the wrath belongs to yesteryear. Oh, and there might be a little bit. I mean, there's some, still some warnings. But nevertheless, the emphasis now, surely, is on the grace of God. But, but now, surely, the but surely refers to now. But now, God, who is rich in mercy, has poured his love abroad in our hearts. Isn't that right? It simply could not be more mistaken. For a start, in the Old Testament, we're told again and again and again that God is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who who fear him. He remembers our frame. He, he knows that we are dust. He's the one who cries, turn, turn, why will you die? The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So if the Old Testament mentions the wrath of God something like 600 times, it's there, all right. It depicts God as spectacularly forbearing, waiting until judgment simply cannot be withheld anymore. And sometimes the Old Testament goes so far as to portray God as the, the almighty cuckold, the betrayed husband, as in the prophecy of Hosea. It's an astonishing picture. And then when you come to the New Testament, well, yes, Jesus is meek and humble. and You will find rest for your souls in him. Yes, yes, that's true. And Jesus does tell us to turn the other cheek. And Jesus himself goes to the cross and bears our sins in his own body on the tree. But when we find him weeping for the city, it's after a chapter of spectacular denunciation of the city and the promise of threat and fire and judgment. No one speaks in the Bible more often about hell than Jesus. In that sense, I would be prepared to argue that the depiction of God's wrath in the New Testament is 
ratcheted up in comparison with the depiction of God's wrath in the old. A little less on pestilence and plague and war, a little less, but more on hell. And some of the depictions are searing. Here's Revelation 14. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. The image, of course, is from an ancient winepress where there's a large vat into which the grapes are thrown. And the servant girls would kick off their sandals, pull up their skirts a wee bit, and start trampling down the grapes. At the bottom of this vat are little holes, and the juice squishes out through the holes into stone channels that collect the grape juice in underground stone vats, which in turn become the liquid from which the wine is ultimately made. But now people are being thrown into the winepress of God's wrath, trampled by angels until their blood flows to the height of a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. That's the image. Now, are you quite sure you want to say that the picture of God is softer in the New Testament than in the Old? As you move from the Old to the New, you don't move from a picture of wrath to love. It just isn't true. Rather, as you move from the Old to the New, both the picture of God's wrath and the picture of God's grace are ratcheted up. They're both ratcheted up. So that if you think that the picture of God's wrath is stark in the pages of the Old Testament, it's starker yet in the pages of the New. As the eternal dimensions of God's wrath are disclosed. And if you think that the pictures of God's gentleness and forbearance and love in the Old Testament are wonderfully warm and reassuring, they are Minor compared with a spectacular display of the cross. Indeed, as you pummel your way through the scriptures with both of these themes driving forward, they, they, they come together finally and spectacularly in a, in a glorious smash together at, at the cross. Do you want to see the most dramatic pictures of God's love? Turn to the cross. Do you want to see the most dramatic pictures of God's wrath? Turn to the cross. You, you see, all of that is presupposed in our passage. Be, because people, human beings, you and me, Christians, non-Christians, the whole world, all of us are portrayed as those who are children of wrath. 
because of our transgressions and sins, because of our attraction to the world, because of our cravings of the sinful nature, because of our, our lostness, our, our very death to God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ. The truth of the matter is that God in the Bible is portrayed as standing over against us in wrath and standing over against us in love. He stands over against us in wrath because of our great sin. He stands over against us in love because he's that kind of God. The wrath that we face is the wrath of God. And the only hope we have is the love of God. And there you have much of the gospel in a nutshell. Our hope, finally, is in God and what he has done for broken sinners like you and me in his son on a little hill outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And all that flows from this, the gift of the Spirit and the new birth and being justified freely by grace and the down payment of the promised inheritance and all that is coming in the glories that he has provided, all that is coming ultimately in new heaven and a new earth, a home of righteousness, resurrection, existence, all coming because of God who is rich in mercy. We were dead. Now we're told, verse 5, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It follows, therefore, that because we were dead, we could not earn our own way. We could not pay our own way. It follows, therefore, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It is only Paul's epistle to the Ephesians that uses this expression in the heavenly realms in quite this way, and it's used five times. Let me tell you what I think it means. It's a bit of theological jargon, but then I'll unpack it. To say that we are raised with Christ in the heavenly realms, here's the theological jargon, is a spatial way of talking about inaugurated eschatology. That's what it is. It's a spatial way of talking about inaugurated eschatology. Now let me explain. Eschatology, of course, is the study of last things. And everybody who's reading the Bible eventually becomes aware of the fact that one of the glorious things about the gospel is that the last things have already dawned. In one sense, eschatology, the last state of affairs, has already been inaugurated. It's already been partially realized. So we speak of things that are yet to come, like resurrection bodies and the new heaven and the new earth. We don't have those yet. That's future eschatology. But already we have the Holy Spirit as the down payment of the promised inheritance. Already we have sins forgiven. In justification, the final action of God, the final decision of God, he, 
has taken place because of what Christ has done on our behalf. He declares us just in his presence. That's, that's really a verdict that belongs to the end. But we have it already because of what Christ has done on our behalf. He has taken our sins. We have his righteousness. The great exchange has taken place. We are already justified and we're not even at the end yet. Do you see? That's realized eschatology, inaugurated eschatology. And being seated with Christ in the heavenlies is a kind of spatial image of the same thing. Now let me take you through the five places in Ephesians where this expression is used. The first is found in 1.3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So we've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's the first one. Then in 120, pick it up in 118, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power... That is, the power that's working in us Christians is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So here it's Christ who is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. The heavenly realms in this picture surely refers to the abode of God, as it were, the, the throne of God. And now Christ, in the wake of the resurrection and ascension, Christ himself has been seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. That's 120. Then, 2.6, our passage. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Well, that's a little harder to understand. I mean, we understand that Christ is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, but we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms? Press on, 3.10. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose. That is, angelic beings, and we'll see in a moment, even broken, fallen, rebellious angelic beings. Last, chapter 6, verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do you see what's going on? The heavenly realms are the realms of God, where there is a cosmic struggle that is going on. The struggle is not just here. It's cosmic-wide. But Christ is already at the Father's right hand, seated in the heavenly realms with him because of his victory on the cross, his death and his resurrection on my behalf. And we are so identified with him that if he's there, there's a sense in which we're there too. Oh, we're, we're not there yet in our resurrection bodies. We're, we're, we're not there physically in the new heaven and the new earth. That, that hasn't come yet. But we're so identified with Christ that if he's there, we must see ourselves as already being there in principle. 
This identification between Christ and the church works both ways and often in the New Testament. When Saul is riding along to Damascus to persecute Christians, he is confronted by the glorified, resurrected Christ on the Damascus road. And the Lord Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Is that what he says? No, of course not. Why are you persecuting me? Because Christ is so identified with the church that if you persecute the church, you're persecuting Christ. If you're helping brothers and sisters in Christ, you're doing it to Christ himself. And in exactly the same way, if Christ is already in the very presence of God at the Father's right hand, well, we're so identified with him. He has taken our sins, and we have got his righteousness, and he identifies with us, and we're in him. And, 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 and this union is so intimate that, that there's a sense in which we're there too. Well, not perfectly, but that's where the identity runs. Do, do, do you see? In, in exactly the same way that there's realized eschatology and futurist eschatology, so there's our presence in the heavenly realms already now, even though we're waiting for the heavenly realms to come. It's a kind of spatial equivalent of inaugurated eschatology. And that's one of the reasons, then, why... Stretching the metaphor farther, the Apostle Peter in his first epistle can look at us working here as sojourners because we don't really belong here, at least not if this is considered our final home. It's not our, our final home. Here we're passing through. It, it's a place of sojourning because we're already there. Do, do, do you see? And likewise, in Hebrews chapter 12, we're already gathered into the very presence of God with the saints from every generation. This is common language in the New Testament, so that even though this expression, the heavenly realms, is restricted to Ephesians, the idea is very common in the New Testament, a kind of spatial equivalent of inaugurated eschatology, all secured by Christ's love. To what end? We read, verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. To this end, verse 7, in order that in the coming ages... He might show the incomparable richness of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. There's the ultimate eschatology. The inaugurated eschatology leads to the consummated glory in the ages to come. Brothers and sisters, I am persuaded that one of the most urgent needs in the Church of Jesus Christ today is a renewed vision of glory, of resurrection existence of heaven, of the new heavens and the new earth. If you live in San Francisco, you might be persuaded, a lot of people are persuaded, that we're so close to heaven already that we don't really need that next one. So sometimes when Christians are living in poverty and disease and decay and so on, then the images of the new heaven and the new earth become a little more attractive. It doesn't take much to look a little better than what we've got. 
But if we understood a little more fully how the Bible pictures the new heaven and the new earth, then we'd start getting homesick for heaven. The preaching of the gospel was for a long time understood as preparing people to die well. But that's not normally the way we think of the gospel in the Western church today, preparing people to die well. Because we're busy trying to avoid dying at all. What kind of image do we commonly use in Western culture to depict heaven? Isn't it somebody sitting in a white nightgown on a puffy cloud playing a harp? And the harp is depicted as a modern harp, one of those great big S-shaped frames, lots of strings on it, pedals. You pull it back between your knees and press the pedals and pluck the strings and make some music. Every decent symphony orchestra needs one harp, maybe two, but not more. But if that's what heaven is like, with all respect to classical musicians and harpists, I'm not sure I want to go. <laughs> I mean, I might be able to enjoy playing it for the first billion years, but after a while it would get a little boring. <laughs> Besides, I have very pale skin. I don't look good in white. <laughs> you know, if, if those are the kinds of images we have of heaven, no wonder we don't want to go there. Do, 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 do you know? Suppose it's better than hell, but not by much. But then cast your mind a little more broadly into depictions, biblical depictions of heaven. Where does this word harp come from? Both in the Old Testament and the New, the harp was not our great big hulking instrument. It, it was an instrument of joy. It was used for glad occasions so that when the people go into exile, by the rivers of Babylon, they write, there we hung up our harps. Our captors say, sing us a song of Jerusalem. How can I sing a song of Jerusalem in a foreign land? You hang up the harps because there's no more joy in the land, do you see? But in the book of Revelation, in the great inaugural vision of chapters 4 and 5, when it's clear that Christ has come to open the scrolls and bring about all of God's purposes and judgment and blessing, then all the harps come out. That is, there's joy, there's relief, there's gladness. What instrument in your mind is most associated with, with happiness? That varies enormously from culture to culture. There's not a universal happy instrument. But for many people, even in San Francisco, a banjo? <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to be gloomy when a really good finger-picking banjo player knows this stuff. You know, you don't hear a lot of banjos played at funerals. So heaven's a place with a lot of banjos, which is another way of saying it's a joyful place. It's spectacularly happy. Then it's also a place where there's work. Do you remember how Jesus in the parable of the talents says to the one who has multiplied the, 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 the five talents to become ten and the, 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 the two guy to have four and so on. Well done, good and faithful slave. You've been faithful over a few things. A few things? 
The picture is picturing bags of gold, millions and millions and millions of dollars that the guy has invested in and, and got a double return. You've been faithful over a few things. I will now make you administrator of many things. I'm going to give you a real job. You know what? When you get to heaven, you're going to have a real job. And you'll never get tired and there'll never be any crookedness. Sometimes it's pictured as rest. Often it's pictured as song with cherubim and seraphim and then angels and, and then 10,000 times 10,000 of angels and then beyond that all the company of the redeemed in concentric circles singing the hallelujah chorus in Britain. In Britain? No, oh, no, no. In heaven. And they'll be learning. There's no suggestion in Scripture that when you get to heaven, you'll suddenly be omniscient. Omniscience is an, in a, is, is an, an incommunicable attribute of God. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, an attribute of God that cannot be shared with non-God. You will not be omniscient. You will never be omniscient. When you die, you won't know everything. But there will be people there from every language and tribe and people and nation. Every language. It doesn't say we're all going to speak the same language. What language do you think we're going to speak in, 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 in heaven and earth? Well, the Chinese think they know, and they say we've got more numbers to prove it. <laughs> English speakers always think it's going to be English just because we're English. <laughs> the Jews think it's Hebrew. I think they're all going to be there. People from every language and tribe and people and nation. And if it takes me a million years to learn Mandarin, who cares? I can use the next million for Arabic. <laughs> I'm going to be learning stuff. Did you see? L learning languages, learning cultures, learning people, learning the attributes of God, learning what the Bible is doing. I'm going to be a great Bible student someday. And above all, better than everything else, what the church is called the Visio Dei the vision of God, we will see his face. Revelation 22 puts it. While the angels surrounding the throne cover their faces with their wings, unable to gaze upon him, we blood-bought Christians will see his face, the highest good of all. At Christian funerals, we often spend quite a lot of time on how this dear departed brother is now reunited with his wife, and that's fine. But it's not the emphasis in the Bible. The emphasis in the Bible is the visio dei. We will see him face to face. So that even our experience of God by means of the Holy Spirit in our day and generation, in our lives, is itself considered the down payment of the glory yet to come. We gaze on him with the eyes of faith, the experience of the Spirit, washed over, as it were, by the Spirit in moments of really great joy, sometimes under preaching or sometimes alone on your knees with your Bible or sometimes when you're pushed to the uttermost and, and you're, you're half crying and half weeping for joy. Haven't most Christians experienced things like this? And you glimpse something of the eternal God and it's just a glimpse, but then there will be the visio Dei. 
I think it's hard to bear witness to the glory of the gospel without being homesick for heaven. I think it's hard to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrode and thieves do not dig through and steal unless that really is where your treasure is. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I, I think it's hard to maintain a moral line of integrity unless you realize that's where you're heading and you want to prepare to get there. So already we're seated with Christ, identified with Him, and He's already there. We're on the way. We have the Spirit already as the down payment of the, of the glory yet to come. And all of this seated with Christ in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You think you're privileged to understand the grace of the gospel that has led you to faith in Him? You don't understand the gospel very well yet. It's in the ages to come. He will unpack the incomparable riches of His grace to us who believe. So we focused first on us in our deadness, on God who is rich in mercy, and finally bringing it all together we focus on salvation by grace through faith unto God's prepared good works, verses 8 to 10. These verses, of course, are well known. For it is by grace you have been saved. Well, how could it be any other way? You were dead. Dead people can't save themselves. Dead people don't hear the words of convicting power. As one old hymn puts it, grace taught my heart to fear and then my fears relieved. What brought you conviction of sin? Grace! What brought you relief from conviction of sin? Grace! By grace you have been saved. Through faith! Grace as the ground, faith as the means, and even that faith is a gift from God. No one will get to heaven, look around, and discover his or her brother isn't there. And say, you know, we were brought up in the same family, had the same parents, went to the same Sunday school, had the same discipline, had the same care. But, but you know... I believed in Jesus and my brother didn't. I exercised saving faith and he did not. At the end of the day, that's why I'm here and he's not. If you can do that, that would be a legitimate boast for all of heaven. For all eternity, that would be a legitimate boast. I'm here, oh, I know I'm here because of Christ's death on the cross, and I'm here because of his grace, and that, that's all true. But the point is, I accessed it because I believed. That's why I'm here and somebody else is not. The Bible won't let you get away with that argument because even the faith is a gift from God. It's a faith that you must exercise. It's your faith. But the reason you exercise it is because it's a gift from God. 
Or to put it in another Pauline formula in, Ephes- in, in Philippians. But work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Saved by grace alone. It is the gift of God. And therefore, verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. Or as Romans puts it, where is boasting? It is excluded. That's the payoff for understanding the sovereignty of God in our salvation. It excludes boasting and magnifies grace. Yet, that's not all. This gospel not only brings us to a right standing with God, it brings us not only to justification, it brings us not only to the place where God declares, all right, not guilty, actually just in in, in my presence because of what my son has borne for you. The great exchange has taken place. He takes your sin and expiates it. You have his righteousness. You are just in my eyes. That's your legal status. That's not the whole gospel. That's justification, but it's not the whole gospel because the gospel transforms. That's why when Paul, writing to the Romans, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, because it is the power of God unto salvation. It transforms. There are so many different ways the Bible has of making this point. For example, writing to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul can lay out a number of sins that exclude a person from going to heaven. Not because they cannot be forgiven, but because if they're continually practiced, unbroken, unconfessed, unrepented of, then clearly you remain lost. So we read 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. So it's not as if these sins eliminate a person from entering the kingdom. It means that these sins not gotten rid of keep you out of the kingdom. So likewise in our passage, we are God's handiwork, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So transformed by the gospel that we actually do begin to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we do begin to understand what it is to love our enemies and And we begin to do good works not because we're patting ourselves on the back for being nice people, but because in gratitude and faith it seems like the least we can do when Christ has done so much for us. And gradually our entire worldview, our frame of reference shifts 
At the end of the day, when I stand before the pearly gates, as it were, and I am asked, why should I let you in here? It won't be because I say, well, I've done quite a lot of good works. But at the end of the day, all the good works that I ever managed to do will never serve as an adequate ground for letting me in. I am saved by grace through faith, not of works. And yet, as the Reformers were quick to insist, we may be saved by faith alone. But genuine faith is never alone. It brings with it such transformation of character that we begin to walk in the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Transformation. Transformation. On the way to glory. All this is a massive vision that takes us from the bondage of the will to the new heaven and the new earth. It takes us from death to life. It takes us from transgression to pardon. It takes us from lostness to grace. It takes us from Satan to God. It takes us from identity with the world to identity with Christ. This vision stands over against every other vision in the universe today. It's the gospel. Let us pray. Lord God, we do want to avoid, on the one hand, succumbing to the self-promotion that somehow feels we are more acceptable in your sight because we've tried harder or go to church or are generous. We want to see clearly how ugly sin is, how death-dealing it is, how inexcusable it is, how damning it is, in order that we may see all the more clearly the glories of Christ Jesus and what he achieved in our behalf. And on the other hand, we want to avoid all the dangers bound up with imagining that because we have been justified by grace through faith, therefore we may live indifferentiably from the world and the flesh and the devil, when clearly that's not so. You save us by grace through faith in order that we may walk in the works that you have prepared for us before the world began. Small wonder that the Master himself said, By their fruit you shall know them. So work in us individually. Work in the churches represented in this room. Work in the churches in the Bay Area that understand the gospel to show forth the glory of Christ by such transformed living that even when people are disgusted by Christianity, they find themselves strangely attracted, even as they are repulsed, to holiness. We thank you, merciful God, that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies in anticipation of the glories yet to come. And so we join with the church in every generation that cries out, Yes, yes, even so, come. Lord Jesus.
in whose name we pray. Amen.